Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to give a, a, a heartfelt and deep thanks for uh, many of the families uh, who contributed either time or other resources uh, yesterday or earlier in the week in um, helping to make the grounds uh, uh, managed and look good. Uh, I appreciate your contributions of time and and uh, I really just enjoyed spending time getting hot, sweaty, and dirty uh, alongside many of you. Amen. <laughs> no, John. <laughs> well, no, the, the being with people was not sarcastic. The hot, you know. What I mean? okay. The other thing, the other announcement I have is, um, you know, I, I, I in in jest, I I gave uh, Eric a. Uh, I wanted to give Eric a welcome package, but I, I think the more applicable term would be prodigal. So welcome, welcome back. But no, it really, it really is a joy. For those of you who haven't met the Carlsons or don't know, um, they are one of the most encouraging couples uh, in my life, and I love them very dearly. And uh, those who do know them are, I'm sure, overjoyed to to see you return. So it's great, great to be here with you guys. We love you. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, <clears throat> let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard for we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. <clears throat> for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains... For some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a, day, a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, and this, is, this is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is telling us what we ought to do. Right? You don't have to look for the application. Scripture is giving you the application. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, to believe, so that no one will fall <coughs> through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold it fast. Do not let it go. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love those applications. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you are indeed a, our great high priest, an intercessor 
a mediator, and a class of your own. You are far better than Moses, far better than Joshua, far better than any figure who had previously come. And you give a better rest, you give a greater grace, you provide greater compassion and mercy, and you give a greater peace because your accomplishment on the cross and putting away our sin is greater than any priestly sacrifice in a temple could ever be. Lord, I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply this application. Let us draw near to your throne of grace to find help and mercy in our times of need. And let, it, let the eyes of our hearts never waver from your sufficiency or your supremacy. You are indeed great. Amen. to preach a message today in response to Pride Month, and I know it's probably two weeks short, but the presence of Pride Month causes us to ask certain questions, and I, I am going to be, uh, I'm going to veil my, my terms and my language today, I, I'm not going to say anything that would be inappropriate for kids to hear, but the presence of Pride Month asks causes us to ask certain questions that I think are good for us to ask and to, and to be able to answer, such as, why is homosexuality wrong? And for that matter, the rest of that spectrum, uh, all the letters that, that we have been adding on, why are all these things wrong? And really, up until maybe 20 or 30 years ago, those things were wrong because, well, that's just not what we do. Or, it's gross. Or, it's weird. Or, it's not normal. Or, because it is. And maybe you were fortunate to have grown up with a Christian upbringing and in a Christianized atmosphere. And instead of hearing something as, instead of hearing a non-answer like, well, that's just what we do. Or, because it is. Maybe you heard, well, certain behaviors and certain lifestyles are wrong because God says that they are wrong. And maybe you were fortunate enough to hear that the, the Bible says homosexuality and the homosexual lifestyle is sin. And you would have been fortunate to have heard that because that is true. The Bible does say that. But why... On a more fundamental level, why is homosexual homosexuality wrong and sinful? I mean, I just said the Bible said so, and for many of us, for most of us, I hope and presume that would be enough to settle the score, but uh, I do want to get to a more fundamental issue in that I aim to show you today that it is fundamentally wrong and sinful because... In addition to the, the Bible saying so, all of those letters are entirely contrary and opposed to God's design and intention for what marriage is to be and for where sexual expression is to take place. And I don't want to say that those passages that specifically call out and specifically speak to the letters in the spectrum in the Old and New Testament aren't important because they most certainly are. And I don't want to say that they're not clear because they most certainly are. But my aim today is to show you positively what God intended marriage to be so that when you see a counterfeit being paraded out there as though it were marriage that you can say with confidence and with clarity, no, it's not. And when you say, no, it's not, you won't be saying that because you are mean or because you are 
bigoted or because you are personally or culturally opposed, but because you know biblically what marriage is and that you can point out with clarity and with gentleness and grace and compassion, you can point out how the counterfeit doesn't line up when it's evaluated side by side with the real thing, if and when you hopefully can engage with those who don't agree with what the Bible says. So everyone clear on what our goal is today? It's to, it's to transcend or to go beyond, well, the Bible says so. Seven details or aspects of God's intentional design for marriage. The first one is that it is a God-ordained union. Marriage is a God-ordained union. It didn't begin with man. It didn't begin with any culture. It didn't begin with any government or any people group. It began with God. Scripture shows us that God established marriage along with creation, long before any cultural considerations came into account. So our understanding, our definition, our rebuttal and argument for what is and isn't marriage goes beyond or, or begins previous to any cultural considerations. It goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. In Genesis 2.18, we find that something wasn't good. And that is remarkable because the reoccurring theme of God creating everything up until that point is that things, when God made them, they were good. Chapter 1, verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters he called seas. And it was good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in their kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God made the sun and the moon two great lights to govern the day and the night, and the stars also. And as Psalm 19, verse 1 tells us, that this greater expanse of the heaven declares the glory of God's handiwork. It's all the incredible photos of Saturn's rings and, and uh, all these other uh, photos of galaxies that we get from satellites. God saw all of that. And so naturally, he says it was good. And then God created sea creatures, both big and small, and every winged bird after their kind. And chapter 1, verse 21 says, God saw that it was good. God made the beasts of the earth and the cattle and everything that creeps on the ground. Sorry for those of you who are creeped out by bugs. But God said, even they were good. And then in Genesis 2, something was not good. Man was alone. Man was alone. He had no companion, no suitable helper. As he was, man was incomplete. He had no counterpart, no partner, no helper to to assist him in fulfilling the call upon his life in a way and in a manner that is complementary to the way he was made. Verse 20 says that a suitable helper, a counterpart, was not found among the cattle or the birds or the beasts of the field. Sorry, dog lovers. Even man's best friend was not a suitable helper. And because of that, God made one. And so Adam fell into a deep sleep. Never, ever underestimate the good that God can do with a nap. <laughs> Adam fell into a deep sleep, a Benadryl sleep. 
and God performed divine surgery. And from man, God made woman. And when he presented her to the man, the man does what every man does when he falls in love. He broke out into song and poetry. Why? Because he was happy. I mean, God knew it was good, and man obviously could tell this is good. In fact, God says this was very good in verse chapter 1, verse 31. And Moses then adds this editorial inference to, to God bringing man and woman together. Verse 24, and this is a prescription, this is prescribed instruction for how men and women are to relate to one another, henceforth, based on this archetypal pattern. Verse 24, for this reason, because of what just happened, because of what God just did, a man, singular, here's, this is the formula, a man, one man, shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Singular, 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 singular. And now, now we get a plural. They shall become and go back to the singular one flesh. That's the pattern. Marriage is a God Ordained, you could also say a God designed union. Secondly, marriage is also a complementary union. Marriage is a complementary union. God had the right to make whatever he seemed fit and appropriate to make for the for the man in response to his incompleteness. And having made man from his head to his toes, God knew the insides and the outsides of this thing he created. And he knew precisely what man needed. He knew what would be best, what would be good and appropriate to provide man with. He knew what man needed. And he fashioned a woman. He didn't fashion a GPS finder. He didn't fashion a, plan, uh, a planning book. He made a woman. He resolved the problem of man being in isolation. And the problem of man being incomplete by making a companion to him who was different from him. Who was distinct from him. And surely in some ways she is like him. She, like him, or stand upright. She, like him, both have two eyes, two ears, and a mouth, and hair, and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, in some ways, she's like him, but in some very obvious ways. And I would, I would point out, in some very essential and very necessary ways, she is not like him. I suppose... If he wanted to, God could have made a companion or a counterpart or a helper for Adam. You know, uh, he, he could have used a mirror image. He could have made something else, but he didn't. He made a helper who was different and, here's the word, suitable to him. He made a helper and a companion who was suitable. Suitable uh, has the idea of being complementary <coughs> or, or that which corresponds to. That which corresponds to. And anybody who's ever tried a, a DIY project knows that when you have, you know, uh, say a, a 10 millimeter nut or a 10 millimeter bolt that you need to tighten and you get out your little... Um, uh, uh, a 40 or 50, 50 piece socket set. There is one socket which corresponds to that 10 millimeter bolt in that set. 
And you can go through, starting from the largest and work your way down. That one's not. That one doesn't correspond. This one doesn't correspond. This one doesn't correspond. And you work your way down. And when you find the corresponding socket, it fits. It works. It corresponds to the bolt. God, the way that God made the man and the woman. Likewise, they correspond, they complement, they fit one another, they work with each other. And this can be seen, this is certainly not exhaustive, nor comprehensive, but they are <coughs> corresponding emotionally. Men are strong and bold, typically. Women are typically nurturing and cautious. And it is good that men are the way they are and women are the way they are. Mentally, and brain studies have shown that women, that the female brain has more physiological connecting bits between the two hemispheres. And so there is a physiological reason why women can multitask so well. Men tend to focus on, and some might say obsess, I would say focus. Do what you will, but men tend to focus on fewer things. Women can do 20 things at once and do them pretty good. If not excellent. I have to choose my words real carefully. <laughs> men and women also correspond physically. I don't need to explain that. Having made this complementary counterpart whose distinctiveness, whose difference from the man, who, whose distinctiveness and difference to the man completes the man, God said, looking at this union of two distinct, different, corresponding genders who come together and, and having come together form a, a singular whole, God says, as it were, this is very good. This is very good final touch on his creation is the joined union of one man and one woman, one gender and one different corresponding gender. And that pattern found in the first man and woman became the pattern for all subsequent marital unions. A man will leave his father and mother. That's the presiding. That's the, the already established union. And he will be joined to his wife, who, logically, she came from another union. And then those two come together, and they will themselves be joined together in a one-flesh relationship that, amongst other things, produces children who will then one day repeat the cycle. God looked at that paradigm that he set up, and he said, this is a good thing. And that word for good, I mean, the way we use good... Nowadays, and it kind of just means, well, okay, you know, adequate, mediocre, yeah, you know, how you doing? Oh, I'm good, yeah, whatever. No, this, this good means it is a good thing. It is an excellent thing. Man and woman coming together and being one, it is a beautiful, marvelous, God-glorifying thing. Marriage is God-ordained. And it is complementary. Third, it is designed to be lifelong. It is designed to be a lifelong union. Matthew 19, Jesus was asked about the legality and the grounds of divorce. And to answer his opponents, Jesus appealed to Genesis 2. Genesis comes up a lot more than people give it credit for. And in Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus asks, and he's, he's, he's assuming the answer, Have you not read? Of course they've read. But have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and he made them female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You've read that, right? 
surely you have. So, as an inference, as, as, a, as a conclusion, based on that fact, they are no longer two, says Jesus, but they are one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, here it is, let no man separate. Jesus goes back to creation. And he says, God made marriage. He designed it. He designed it to be a union of one part male, one part female. And the resulting union is also one part. Two individuals who have been brought together, joined together. That union is not to be treated as something that can be dissolved or torn apart at the drop of a hat. Now Jesus is speaking to two, to, to, to really two groups in this. He is speaking both, or maybe entities would be a better word. He is speaking to both individuals who would perhaps be tempted, well, he was speaking to individuals who had compromised God's standards of marriage by themselves exercising and utilizing easy divorcism. He's speaking to individuals who themselves violated their own marriage in this capacity. But he is also speaking to another entity. He is speaking to rulers and authorities and magistrates and governors and presidents and county clerks who think they have the right to legalize and legislate anything less than a God-designed standard of marriage. I mean, when, when Jesus says, let no man separate, that kind of covers the playing field. Let no one infringe on this. marriage bond is to be held in high regard not only on a personal level between husband and wife but it is also to be seen as a holy work of divine accomplishment by institutions of government by kings and rulers and authorities and principalities and county clerks, and even renegade ministers, and quite frankly, anybody and everybody who might have the audacity to think that they have the right, they have the authority, they have the prerogative to govern and to change the definition and the functionality of marriage. When they, when they do that, when they take it upon themselves to redefine marriage, to set the terms for marriage, they have overstepped their bounds because they are now transgressing into an area that is beyond their reach. When legislators and politicians and rulers and governors invoke their own authority here, what they are doing in effect is they are professing alongside Jerry Nadler who a couple weeks ago, months ago, said, God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Whenever any governing body redefines or attempts to legislate marriage, they are, in effect, making that same profession. I don't care what God says. This is precisely what we have from our legislators and our justices and our politicians over the last 10 to 20 years. You can you could probably argue over when it exactly started. But it, the last 10 years has been a roller coaster ride. They have been doing the very thing Jesus said must not be done. They separate men and women in the institution of marriage as God defined it by redefining marriage according to their own perverse terms. And they keep a man and a woman apart 
by introducing legislation that, that instead of bringing man and woman together, brings man and man together, or woman and woman together, and legislation is being proposed for any, for other, any other number of combinations into a union that they call marriage, even when it is not according to the pattern God sent down in Genesis. Jesus says, do not change the order that has been laid down by God. One man, one woman, two distinct genders that correspond to each other. They're not mirror images. They're not copy and paste. They are two distinct pieces that complete one another and become, when brought together, they, became, they become a new one. And they are to remain that one, that whole, that joined unit and union that God has brought together. It is to remain in place, and to remain as it is, it is to remain intact, it is to remain upheld as sacred and celebrated and enjoyed until it is, as 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, dissolved in by death of one of your partners. Until that happens, it is to be held intact. Fourth, marriage is an exclusive union. Marriage is an exclusive union. Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And the Seventh Commandment says, You shall not commit adultery. Adultery is the physical act of violating the one flesh union between a husband and a wife, when one of those two goes out and joins themselves to someone who is not their spouse. Someone who is outside of the already established one flesh union. Moses says, in effect, you shall not join in union with someone outside of your already established union. Don't join don't unite with a woman who isn't your wife or with a man who isn't your husband. And what this commandment does is it sets up a sacred fence around this sacred union so as to protect it. Who you have been joined to by God, under God, under His providence, under his law, who you have been married to, that's who you're joined to and no one else. You are to be intimate and you are to be involved only with them and no one else. Now, fidelity and faithfulness in this area requires more than simply just not engaging physically to someone outside of the marriage union. It includes also not engaging emotionally and mentally. And some of you are thinking, oh, Aaron's going to Matthew 5. Yes, but not yet. Just four, three or four lines down, still in Exodus 20, Moses also says that adultery of the heart is not, must not take place. Verse 17, in the last commandment, you shall not covet, the second phrase of this command, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Not, not, not but four lines down from the seventh commandment, speaking on adultery, God says his people must not merely be sexually and physically exclusive with their spouse, they must likewise be mentally and emotionally exclusive with their spouse. Just as your body must respect the union of marriage, your heart and your mind need to as well. Now in Matthew 5... I'm just going to read it. I don't need to explain it because, or comment on it because it would be redundant at this point. But let me just read it. 
Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Exclusive in body and in heart to your spouse. Now, someone may raise a question, and I'd say rightly so. What about polygamy in the Old Testament? This is a, this is a tough one to respond to. And here's just a couple, a couple principles to take into account. Or a couple responses. Don't make, first, don't make, don't mistake description for prescription. There are plenty of things in the, in the Bible that, that go like this. This is what happened. It's a description that does not mean this is what you are, this is what you ought to do. Just because it happened does not mean God smiled upon it or that he wants others to do the same. Secondly, Genesis 2.24, which happens well before any case of polygamy happens, says this, A man, singular, shall cleave to his wife, singular, and they will become one flesh. The, the singular aspect of that, of that last clause is emphasized. So from the very beginning, God says this is the pattern. One man, one woman, they cling to each other, they hold fast, they, they adhere, they bond. And as, as a bonded unit, they are one. Now, if that already takes place, you can't really go and become one with someone else. Third, there is no single instance where polygamy is described favorably. There's Lamech and Esau outside of the family of faith. Within the family of faith, you have Abraham, Jacob, you have Samuel's parents, you have David, and most notably, and most tragically, Solomon. And their lives became harder, and their family life suffered because polygamy was, was introduced to the family. And some arguments could be made as to why God uh, appears to have allowed it or permitted it, such as the, the higher fatality rate of men. Men were the ones who went off to war. Men were the ones who died in the war. More often than not, men do stupid things and lend, end their lives prematurely. Men have a higher fatality rate than women, and so... You look throughout history and you would find an abundance of widowed women. And typically, women couldn't provide for themselves if they didn't have a father or a husband to take care of them. And so, typically, they resorted, if they didn't want to starve, they resorted to begging, theft, or prostitution. So, an argument could be made that God allowed it or permitted it as a measure of provision for widowed women. However, nowhere, absolutely nowhere, is polygamy prescribed as the norm or commanded to be done. It seems to be a concession. It is not a prescription or a command. Fifth, marriage is an intimate union. Marriage is an intimate union. 1 Corinthians 7.3 God commands intimacy to be shared between husband and wife. Paul says the, the husband must, not should, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, you have to, you have to continue reading at that point. 
The husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So I don't want anyone getting the idea that, that Paul here is prescribing uh, a recipe for, for the man or for anybody to have authority uh, to, to become this dominating, uh, assertive uh, jerk against their spouse's desires. That, that's not it. Here's where he's going. Verse 5. Stop depriving one another. <clears throat> Within your marriage, stop depriving one another. Stop withholding yourselves from your spouse and come together in intimacy. And Paul Paul says it's reasonable to do this if there's something particularly burdensome going on, if there's something very heavy, something troubling to one or to both of the married uh, individuals. And so intimacy in marriage, in the marriage union, may be briefly paused if three conditions are met. One, if it's by mutual consent. Paul says, uh, except if by except by agreement. So both husband and wife need to agree. Okay, that's 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 let's hold off on for a while. Second, if it's brief, he says, except by agreement for a time. Third, if that time and energy is being spent in devotion to prayer. He says, accept by agreement for a time so that, here's the purpose clause, this is why you, you take a reprieve, this is why you pause by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. After that's taken place, husband and wife must come together again. And that, uh, that rests, that <coughs> command rests on the authority of the first command to stop depriving one another. Intimacy between husband and wife is to be a ongoing practice, taking breaks only when absolutely necessary, because necessary breaks might turn into prolonged periods of time. And if that happens, frustration, temptation, and as Paul says right there, a lack of self-control will arise. And these things will provide the opportunity to create even more problems that are going to assail the marriage. God designed intimacy to be a mutually shared, mutually given, mutually safeguarding or mutually protecting, mutually enjoyed, regularly done activity between husband and wife. Sixth, marriage is a fruitful union. Let's go back to Genesis real quick. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just as a side note, being, ma uh, being male is reflective of being made in the image of God. Being a female is reflective of being made in the image of God. Right there, you have equality in personhood and value between the sexes. So, the Bible's not sexist. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill it with babies who are going to grow up and then get married and, con and contribute to this earth-filling, earth-subduing mandate. If you look ahead uh, in, in, in uh, Genesis 8, 17, I believe, this earth-filling, earth-subduing mandate is repeated to Noah. Alongside man's charge to be a steward of God's earth and to rule over it, 
Man and woman, male and female, husband and wife are to be fruitful and multiply. And I am sorry to, to, uh, to be painstakingly, uh, to say something that I would think is painstakingly obvious, but in light of today's culture, this has to be said. That this is only some, this is only something that happens, uh, this is something that happens only when a biological male and a biological female come together in union. It, it boggles my mind that you have to be that clear and state the obvious, but you have to. And the fact that man and woman come together and produce children, that is a beautiful thing. Just as Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the handiwork of God, I would say so too does the reproductive system. I've taken a biology class that focuses on this thing. I, I have read about the, the female side, and that thing is like a Swiss watch. This hormone releases and in turn causes this effect, which in turn releases this hormone, which in turn does... It is, it is an intricate, detailed system that didn't just pop into existence like a Ferrari. It didn't just happen. And, and, and the, 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 the magnitude of precision and detail, I would say, glorifies God. Now, a word for those who are unable to have their own children, biologically. Scripture recognizes that this is a tough burden. And along the lines of the man who was born blind, I would add that this doesn't happen because of your sin or because of anybody else's sin, but so that ultimately God may be glorified in your suffering. And you may not be able to produce children yourself, but there are alternative ways to be a mom and a dad. You can foster, you can adopt, and you can, be, you can most certainly be a support and a positive influence to the children of your local church families and in your community. Now this last point, we're going to explore more thoroughly as we get back into Ephesians in a couple weeks. But marriage is an ordered union. And boy, or girl, I, I can get in trouble with what I say here, but I'm, I'm going to let Scripture speak. It is a, marriage is an ordered union. Ephesians 5, 22 and, and following. Wives, I'm so grateful how sturdy this is. I can, I can duck down and hide behind it if I need to. <laughs> Wives, be subject to your own husbands. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, this means. That there is an authority and a responsibility and a position and a role delegated to the husband that the wife does not have. And the same thing could be said as far as a, as far as a role and a, and a responsibility uh, that the wife has that the husband doesn't have. And, and please listen. Please receive uh, or, or rather understand what I'm saying before the pitchforks are gathered and the tomatoes and the cabbages, this is not because the man is inherently smarter. Oftentimes, he may not be. <laughs> this is not because the man is better at running things. This is not 
because the man is wiser or more intelligent. This is not this this distinction in the roles and in the responsibilities in the and that the man is head and that the woman, the wife rather, notice that this exists within the marriage relationship. Wives be subject to your own husbands, not to someone else's husband. And if you're not married, you're, this doesn't apply to you. You're, if you're not married, then you're technically you're still under your parents' response, uh, uh, that relationship. This is not because of any inherent quality within the man, within the husband. <clears throat> this is not cultural. This isn't Paul's deeply rooted and embedded subconscious loyalty to the patriarchy coming out on his parchment. These are God-designed and God-delegated roles given to the two distinct genders. And it goes back before culture even came to be. It goes back to the order of creation and the manner in which God created man and woman. It, it, culture, this biblical order is not because of patriarchy or because of culture. It is because it corresponds to the manner in which God created man and woman. Furthermore, this order symbolizes and reflects the relationship between Christ and his beloved church. Continue, well, if you're there in Ephesians 5, continue reading verse 23. The wife, the husband, rather, I already get my genders mixed up. The husband is head of the wife as what? As Christ is also head of the church. See that, that comparative word? And then again, as the church is subject to Christ, the wife is subject to her husband. Not someone else's husband, her husband. Verse 25, here's the charge given to the, to the men, to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And the timeliness of, of this message and... and um, uh, and this command, I think it's timely that, I mean, how many weeks have we looked at describing what biblical love is? So, so take all of that, all of my rambling for the last month or two, and fold it up inside that. Husbands, love your wives. And here's the, here, Paul even provides the comparison. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now let me ask you uh, an obvious question. How much did Christ love the church? A little bit? A decent bit? I like, I like that. Like, Russell's like, my arms can't get any wider. I mean, Jesus himself said, no greater love is in this is in that a man lays down his life for his friend or for another. Christ loved the church so much he gave himself up for her. The, the manner of this order within the marriage unit is not that the husband is this dominating figure who walks all over his wife and who mistreats his wife and who's harsh with his wife and treats his wife like a slave or like property property, or like a lesser human being. Verse 28, he loves her as he loves his own body. I mean, Paul even says no one hates his own body. We, we, we instinctively, we naturally take care of ourselves. When we're hungry, we feed ourselves. If we hurt, we nurture the injured part of our body. We naturally take care of our body. We naturally love our body. Paul says, love her as you love your own body. Freely sacrifice for her. Put her needs before your own. Nurture her. 
be affectionate to her, be gentle with her, be patient and long-suffering and gracious with her, and protect her, and lead her in such a manner that she is built up, that she is edified, that she is encouraged, and that she loves having you as her head. What Christ is like toward the church, the husband is to be towards his own wife. Christ loves his church. He cares for his church. He didn't know that. He's never been harsh or or domineering. You know that he was with his disciples for three years and they were numbskulls sometimes. He was patient with them. He was kind to them, gracious, understanding, long-suffering, gentle, edifying. Christ was perfect example of love for his church. What Christ is like towards his church, the husband is to be toward his wife. Well, the husband like that, how, how could the wife not willingly say with sincerity, yeah, I, that's a wonderful man to lead me. That is a wonderful head in position of authority that God has given to the one whom I am joined with. Now more could be said and more will be said when we get to those verses next month. But if you look if you look at the homosexual movement and if you look at the homosexual culture and all and the and the, the culture that is associated with all the other letters of that paradigm, you will see that it does not match up to God's design for marriage. And not only does it not match up, but it totally perverts and corrupts and disrespects what God calls good and sacred. And it actually, and then this is even worse, it, it not only does it 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 it, it blasphemes God's good design for marriage, but it also gives people a poorly, uh, a poor counterfeit, and, and, and it serves as a preventative for people finding and enjoying and benefiting from the goodness of God's design for how a man and a woman should come together and become one. That is why fundamentally homosexuality, and any kind of sexual deviancy is wrong. Not merely because God says so, or the Bible says so, but because it keeps people enslaved to something other than what God designed for them to participate in, and to benefit from, and to enjoy. That's Ultimately and fundamentally, why all the letters of the paradigm are wrong. Let's pray. Lord, give us eyes, give us biblical eyes to see marriage for what it truly is. You have designed it to be a blessing to men and women. You've designed it to be a means by which we receive companionship, the the kind of companionship that you saw that we needed, the kind of companionship that you specifically tailored for us. It blesses us, it protects us, the exclusive, committed, Relationship to one's spouse protects us from temptation. It is 
a cause for joy and pleasure in a way that glorifies you. May we uphold marriage in high regard. <clears throat> may, we, may we see it as a good and sacred thing. Help us to cherish it. And I pray, Lord, as, as a result of this time that not only would we have, not only would we understand why all these deviancies are wrong, but I pray that your body here would be better equipped and ready to engage in a, in a gracious way, in a gentle way, <coughs> and in an effective way as we, as we interact and as we engage with those who are either ignorant of your word or those who just quite frankly don't care what it says, that we would be able to give a clear and concise and accurate explanation of why we believe what we believe. 